0: You on eight. Two on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the
1: providers on the streets. My name is Ross Orpit. And I'm Matt Mendez. Who do we have today, Ross? My name is Martin Musi. I'm an emergency medicine physician at University of Colorado, and I'm pleased to be here. Dr. Moussi
0: is the Wilderness Fellowship Director at the University of Colorado. He is also the Director of the Diploma in Mountain Medicine of the Andes, and he is the Medical Director of the Rocky Mountain Rescue Group and assists in both technical rescue trainings and active missions.
2: What are we going to be talking about with this beautiful Argentinian man today?
1: We're going to talk today about... Different uh, relevant information regarding accidental hypothermia and that, and how this is important for the EMS provider in general. Dr.
0: Moussi just recently got together with some experts from the International Commission of Alpine Rescue to work on a paper that uses current evidence to suggest a revision to the Swiss staging system for hypothermia. The paper and its recommendations have been endorsed by the Medical Commission of the International Commission of Alpine Rescue and is expected to be put forth as a formal recommendation, likely this coming October. The paper is currently
1: under review for publication. The revised Swiss system is, um, and and the original Swiss system as well, is mostly intended for hypothermia, for pure hypothermia. Right when you have, like for example, I have a case the other day on a patient that arrived that was only responding to painful stimuli. Um, he was uh, his heart rate was around a hundred, and he was basically he came out of the bus stop, he was very cold, but he was also intoxicated. So their level of consciousness was also affected by alcohol. So basically with, you know, like with, with our system, you will probably put them on a sicker category than his actual core temperature. His core temperature was actually probably 34.5. So he was mm, like even mildly hypothermic on, or normal thermic, but felt very cold. Is problematic because, especially in the urban setting, hypothermia is many times associated with uh, with these conditions. But there's a couple of situations that can be used. For example, a kid that gets lost, an Alzheimer patient that get lost, you know, exposure to cold, you know, and decreased level of consciousness can be associated with a higher risk of cardiac arrest.
0: Yeah. So tell us why is this a topic that's important and relevant for us to know a lot about.
1: So first of all, uh, hypothermia is very frequent in the urban setting as well as in the remote settings. Uh, But it also uh, accompanies uh, different medical pathologies and traumatic disorders and can have a a huge impact in the morbidity and mortality of patients that suffers from hypothermia primarily or they are complicated by, by hypothermia.
0: So obviously, I think we all realize that this is an important thing in the backcountry when somebody maybe gets stranded. But you're telling me this is important in urban environments, too.
1: Yes. Actually, hypothermia is one of the uh, components of what is called the triad of death of trauma. So coagulopathy, hypothermia, and metabolic acidosis. And basically, when those uh, components are present in the setting of trauma, that increase mortality significantly.
0: And is this something we only need to worry about in say,
1: you know, the northern parts of the U.S.? You know, hypothermia is one of the of those diseases or conditions that are, of, of the ones that are exposed. And uh, it's, it's even uh, possible to have hypothermia even in subtropical regions and tropical regions, especially when there is a combination of water and sometimes booze, you know, like boats and, uh, and alcohol uh, really uh, increase the bar of uh, of the chances of, of hypothermia.
0: Fair enough, you also talked a little bit about the coexistence of trauma. Can you talk a little bit
1: more about that? Hypothermia-induced trauma is, uh, as I said, very frequent. And uh, it's one of the one of those uh, conditions that you can treat in the field. After vascular access and hemorrhage control in the setting of trauma, uh, the management of uh, or prevention or treatment of a trauma-induced hypothermia hypothermia is one of the things that can, that you can do in the field to reduce mortality so have it on the you know like on the top priorities of your traumatic patients when you're assessing uh, and treating uh, those conditions that can increase mortality. But also you have accidental hypothermia primarily, right? You have those patients that can be found uh, either after intoxication or secondary to psychiatric illness that they are lost in the middle of the winter, either here in Colorado or in other cold states. And, uh, you know, like aside from trauma, primary hypothermia has a subset of clinical considerations and outcomes that are a little bit different from for example, a patient that dies from cardiac arrest from, you know, like a cardiologic process.
0: Yeah, what are the differences in outcomes? What do we expect from somebody who maybe has a cardiac arrest from hypothermia?
1: So actually the prognosis of cardiac arrest secondary to accidental hypothermia is very different from your typical out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. You know, like there is different data and you know different methodologies of studies these uh, in case series and uh, and in meta-analysis, uh, but actually the uh, the uh, survival rate for patients with accidental hypothermia can reach up to seventy percent when they are treated with you know advanced uh, techniques like. What, what we call ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in comparison to, you know, 15 to 20% as a goal uh, for the out-of-hospital out of cardiac arrest secondary to cardiologic conditions.
0: Did he say 70%? Yeah, that's pretty amazing, huh? That's why this is so important. These are patients that we have a real opportunity to save.
2: Probably should try to regularly pronounce environmental
0: hyperthermia in the field then. Funny you should mention that. Moosey actually makes that point.
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, the mantra of nobody is dead until you are warm and death um, needs to have a very serious consideration in any patient that is suffering, especially from accidental hypothermic cardiac arrest. And we can go a little bit more in depth um, into what are the considerations of, like, resuscitating someone versus just, you know, pronounce them in the field. As a general rule for a pre-hospital provider, if you're close to the hospital and you suspect that hypothermia is the primary mechanism of why someone is in cardiac arrest, perform CPR, and bring that patient to the hospital because they are the patients that can walk out of the, of the hospital with intact neurologic recovery uh, from a even prolonged periods of CPRs. We have cases of you know, like six hours, four hours of CPR, plus you know, you know, four or five hours on the rewarming machine in the ECMO, and then walking out of the, mar- of the hospital with normal neurologic recovery.
0: That's amazing.
1: So let's start here. Let's
0: start with what are the definitions of hypothermia?
1: So first of all, I want to you know like stop here for a second. If you look at a map of the countries you not know, talking in Fahrenheit and the countries talking in Celsius. You know, U.S. is the only one talking in Fahrenheit. So, you know, let's keep it up, America. You know, like we need, we, need to, we need to start talking in the right uh, language that the entire uh, world talks. So we're going to talk... never been much
0: for followers. Yeah. <laughs>
1: we're going to talk Celsius here. Uh, so hypothermia, as a definition, is basically the decrease of the core temperature below 35 degrees Celsius. And this can be secondary hypothermia, Basically, you have an endocrine problems like hypothyroidisms, or you are intoxicated with uh, with drugs, or you are under uh, medications that prevent you from, you know, basically uh, having your thermal regulations set right. Um, but those are and those are very common causes of uh, uh, of hypothermia. But basically, in, in all those conditions, you're gonna treat. Basically, the underlying condition, and not so much uh, manage of uh, of hypothermia. And then you have primary hypothermia, which can be accidental hypothermia, you know, homicidal hypothermia, or even iatrogenic hypothermia when we put play, uh, patients on mild hypothermia af- after out of hospital cardiac arrest. Right. So that would be the different classifications of primary hypothermia.
0: Why is it important for us to know these different definitions? How does this help us?
1: Well, you know, secondary hypothermia, as I said, you know, you treat the underlying cause and actually has a little bit, you know, like more of a poor prognosis in comparison to primary hypothermia.
0: Are there any current tools we can use in the field to kind of help us for staging or classification?
1: Yes, so staging or classification of hypothermia is important for many, many reasons. Let's say that the most important uh, way to classify a patient is by their core temperature. But obtaining a core temperature sometimes can be difficult. You know, not many, you know, pre-hospital providers will carry thermometers. You know, uh, obtaining a rectal uh, temperature or a bladder temperature is not really feasible in the field. And actually the gold standard for obtaining a core temperature is an uh, is basically a thermometer that you insert through the mouth or the nose on patients that are intubated on, you know, providing a, an esophageal uh, temperature. That's the temperature that is basically behind on the posterior aspect of the heart and provides a, a, a good estimation of what's the uh, arterial or the center ar- central arteries temperature. Now, there's other tools that might be feasible to use in the field. Like for example, an ear thermometer. This is not the cheap ear thermometer that you buy at Walmart. It's a basically very sophisticated thermometer that is functions as a thermistor and basically gives you a good idea of a core temperature when used properly. At the same time, there is some limitations on the using of um, ear thermometers or tympanic thermometers. For example, if you encounter a patient that is, you know, uh, submerged or has water or snow in the ear canal, you might be measuring lower temperatures than the actual core temp.
0: What's the current staging system?
1: So one of the ways to um, stage uh, patients, especially in the field, when you don't have A core temperature or thermometer to measure a core temperature is basically what was defined as the original swiss staging system in a position paper in 2003 the international commission of alpine rescue came up with a system to try to classify patients basically based only on the clinical findings and not uh having a uh, core temperature at all they came up with five classifications or five, classifications, f- five groups of patients um, from HT1 through HT5. In HT1, patients were conscious and shivering, and they estimate that their core temperature was in between 35 to 32. HT2, patients had an impaired consciousness, but they were not shivering. Basically, they, uh, they exhausted all the thermogenesis uh, potential of, uh, of shivering, and now they are uh, basically lying without you know responding, but also without shivering in the clinical findings. Those uh, patients had uh, an estimated temperature in between 38 to 28. In HT3, you have a patient that is unconscious, not shivering, but still have vital signs. And those patients usually um, have a temperature between 28 and 24. In HT4, uh, patients had no battle signs, so they are already in hypothermic cardiac arrest. And then there was a fifth cl- a category that was removed in uh, subsequent uh, editions of the original Swiss uh, staging system is that is dead due to irre- irreversible hypothermia. Those patients had a temperatures that well. That, that was uh, below 13.7. And that 13.7 was from a case uh, of basically the record on, you know, how low was a patient with accidental hypothermia successfully resuscitated. We know now that, you know, like every year and, you know, everything about hypothermia is trying to find the lowest number. We, last year in 2020, there was a case reported of a 23-month-old uh, kid that got out of his house at 4 a.m. in the morning in Krakow, Poland. Okay, minus 7 C at night. Pretty, pretty mild temperature for Krakow at night. But the but the, the kid was uh, found unresponsive in hypothermic cardiac arrest 500 meters from their house and uh, had a you know CPR time of two hours. When he got to the uh, hospital, his temperature was 11.8, and that kid was successfully resuscitated and now has a normal life with normal uh, neurologic recovery. So basically, they decided that the lowest number of like of someone that can be resuscitated from hypothermia is still unknown. <laughs> That is amazing. So when he got to the hospital, his
0: temp was 11 degrees Celsius, which means it started out much lower than that because he was probably in a warm ambulance on the way. Yes,
1: back. 11.8 was when he was placed on ECMO. But, you know, who knows? At the same time, that is the lowest recorded temperature. In a hypothermia, it's a livid. bit... Everything is about the world record, right? Uh, and you know, so far, I don't think that uh, we have seen lowest, lower temperatures than those.
0: Okay, so the new classification staging system, or the the Swiss model, we've essentially removed the irreversible hypothermia from that staging because we don't know what temperature that is.
1: Yeah, so that the evolution of the original Swiss system, you know, this was in 2003. A lot of uh, you know, a, a long time has passed. So that was the original Swiss system and kind of the evolution over the you know the last ten or fifteen years. Now uh, there there is recent data that is showing that the accuracy of the Swiss system um, might not be all that good. Um, there was uh, two studies, two retrospective uh, case reports uh, that in totals. Uh, Came up with uh, 305 patients when they're trying to assess the correlation of the Swiss staging system uh, with a recorded uh, core temperature. The results of that uh, of those studies shows that the uh, Swiss staging system correlates well with the core temperature in 61% of the patients, and then there was a 18% of patients that were. You know where the temperature were, was overestimated, and twenty-one percent of patients where that uh, temperature was underestimated.
2: So it sounds like the Swiss staging system was accurate in its temperature prediction only sixty-one percent of the time. That's really not much better than flipping a coin.
1: Yeah, and there are consequences to over and underestimating, right? If you overestimate the temperature, your patient is classified colder than he or she really is and might lead to unnecessary treatment unnecessary monitoring maybe you know transferring that patient to you know a higher level of care that you need but if the patient is classified warmer than she or he is really is uh, this can you know like you might transfer that patients to an improper facility where they cannot do you know like advanced, uh, rewarming of that patient. So, you know, that really risk of 21% of underestimation is, you know, what we are looking, you know, in the, you know, like in the International Commission of Alpine Rescue as, you know, like maybe there is a potential for harm on, on those patients. And uh, we are working currently with a group of co-authors to try to redefine the Swiss staging system of, on what, would, what we call the revised Swiss system.
0: So what you're telling me right now is that the physical exam findings that we used to rely upon with the Swiss staging does not actually correlate all that well with the actual temperature of the patient. And the actual temperature of the patient is what kind of correlates with their risk of having an adverse outcome.
1: Yes, and that, that's a major determination. Of course, risk of cardiac arrest is very viable among your population, right? Maybe someone that is fit, you know, like a, an alpinist that gets, you know, like uh, stranded in the mountain, uh, you know, with a core temperature of 30 or even 28 might not have, you know, like, might, might not hit the risk of cardiac arrest until you're super low. If you have someone that is very frail you know, like, uh, you know, an Alzheimer patient that, you know, gets lost in the middle of the winter in Colorado, then that patient have risk of cardiac arrest, even with a little upper temperature on 32, even with my hypothermia can have, you know, a cardiac arrest. So it's a little bit of determinant by the patient, but also, you know, like one of the most important determinations for the risk of cardiac arrest is the temperature.
2: So... If the current system isn't much better than flipping a coin at predicting a temperature, but temperature is the best predictor for cardiac arrest,
0: how do we move forward? Well, this is the exact question that Moosey set out to answer with his group.
1: So we, um, you know, we identify with a group of authors what are the limitations of the Swiss station system, of the original system. And, you know, one of the things that we uh, identify is that basically that you, uh, you know, like, the, the language that was used on the original system, you know, conscious, impaired consciousness, is not very clear, right? So we're trying to see if we can correlate it with other types of, you know, scales for mental status, either the GCS or the AFPU score, to try to simplify the language and try to get it, you know, like get it right among a large um, a population of providers. Another limitation that we found is that basically on the original Swiss system, you can be classified, you have two variables, right? You have conscious and shivering. And basically, what about if a patient is shivering but is unconscious, in what category do you put them, right? So basically, this brings the possibility of uh, placing those pa- uh, one patient in two different categories. Shivering is a little bit tricky, you know, like shivering is pretty variable between uh, uh, people, patients, Um, right? You can have someone that is shivering with even a mild drop in the temperature, and you can have uh, patients that can shiver even below, you know, like the expected 32 degrees, which will be your, your cutoff for hypothermia. So actually, we decided that shivering is important for trying to identify what's the thermogenesis production of uh, of an individual patient, but it's not longer a stage-defining sign for the uh, new um, Swiss or revised Swiss staging system. And I think that the uh, most important change that we are looking to make is that instead of trying to estimate what's the core temperature of a patient in the field, why we don't try to estimate what's the risk of hypothermic cardiac arrest and try to you know, leave the numbers when we have an esophageal thermometer and a, you know, like more uh, technology or advanced technology to tell us a little bit more about the you know, core and uh, you know, leave the pre-hospital providers with a little bit more uh, hard outcomes in terms of what, what are we really estimating.
0: I like that. So we're moving towards a much more pragmatic approach for our pre-hospital providers. Can you just summarize kind of the proposed changes to this for our pre-hospital providers?
1: Yeah, I think that the most important change is trying to change the focus from estimation of the temperature to estimation of the risk of cardiac arrest. The second change is that we're trying to see which one of the scales already used in other conditions, GCS, APU, uh, are Proper for a, a simplified, unified uh, definition of stages by, you know, the level of consciousness. And third change, we are removing shivering as a stage defining sign because it's very variable. We are still still it's important to know this information, but knowing that if a patient is shivering, their t- core temperature is probably above thirty. But still, you can have shivering in other patients that might have a lower temperature.
0: We often talk about, with hypothermia, this risk of the cardiac membrane being desensitized to arrhythmias, and that sometimes you have to handle these patients with kid gloves because if you jar them or move them too much, that you might send their heart into a fatal arrhythmia. Is this true? Is there any data to support this? And
1: and if so, what can help clue us into that this patient might be at risk for that? You know, from a pre-hospital provider, you arrive to a patient, right? They fall on a, they fell on a ditch, right? And they are unconscious or minimally responsive. You know, they have been, you know, out for a significant period of time. It's cold outside, it's snowing. You should move that patient very, very carefully. And when you're moving that patient even to the Gourney in the hospital, patients that are unconscious or patients that are minimally responsive have a very low temperature and they got there kind of progressively low. When you move them and create uh, a you know a jargon and uh, moving around, their risk and their you know myocytes at the cardiac membranes is very unstable. If you took them out of that stability, the risk of BFIV arrest is high. So basically, Careful transport and handling in in any unconscious patients because of the low threshold of developing uh, ventricular fibrillation.
0: What about the risk during intubation for developing one of those arrhythmias?
1: It's definitely real. There's a a bunch of pre-hospital logistic troubles with hypothermia. One of those is like, you know, you can um, buy, you know, like the... Motions of intubations and you know like and, and preparing the patient, you can put the patient in uh, ventricular fibrillation. Also, there is a bunch of other stuff that can happen. For example, if you inflate the balloon, you know, with your you know number of CCs that you that you should, as per your tube recommendations, and you start re- you rewarming the patient, the air that you place inside the patient. Is initially cold because of the surrounding cold tissue, and then you start rewarming that patient. That balloon can, you know, expand the in the in the in the trachea and actually, you know, perforate the the, the um, tracheal cuff. Uh, you can have super frigid muscles, like trismus, like uh, rigidity on the jaw, and it's difficult to intubate these patients. You can have like decreased drug metabolism uh, secondary to, you know, meds for RSI, or even in patients that are already in cardiac arrest, you know, we know that the ALS drugs don't metabolize as well in patients that have hypothermia. Um, so usually if someone has a hypothermic cardiac arrest, I try to decrease the dose of the medications that I'm giving, and I'm, uh, I, I'm giving them less often than in a normal cardiac arrest. So, for example, I will double the time or decrease uh, 50% of the dose when I'm managing hypothermic cardiac arrest, and I wouldn't go crazy until the patient has a temperature above about 30.
0: Let's dive a little deeper into that. So, how are you
1: treating hypothermic cardiac arrest differently than our, our standard pre cardiac arrest? Super interesting, you know. Like, if you have a, let's say that the patient arrived unconscious to the hospital without vital signs, uh, that's a, you know, a stage four for either the old or the new uh, Swiss staging uh, system. Uh, and then you have a patient with cardiac arrest. You put, you intubate them because, and you had a, a, a uh, terrible time because of very rigid muscles. You know the drugs for RSIs were 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 not working. Maybe you can relax them, but their uh, their um, metabolized for those drugs, especially in cardiac arrest, is going to be close to none. And then you intubate them. You put an esophageal thermometer. The esophageal thermometer should go in the, at least in the middle third on the lower third of the esophagus as close as the heart as possible. Um, then you have a reading on the temperature. If the temperature is below 30, um, probably you're gonna go with you know lower doses and uh, longer times for uh, your ALS, uh, protocols. And then you can attempt defibrillation if patient has a shockable rhythm. Um, but if you perform three defibrillations and the patient is still in BFib arrest and the temperature is below 30, the chances of having successful defibrillation are pretty low. Entitled CO2 can be a little bit misleading. Can be used for you know tube placement and for you know very low numbers to indicate that that patient is going or is in cardiac arrest. Um, but there is some differences on the you know arterial PCO2 and then tidal CO2 that you get. So the numbers are not exactly what you are seeing on your uh, blood levels.
0: So we can still use it, we can still use that in tidal CO2 to confirm that our endotracheal tube is indeed in the lungs, but it's not necessarily gonna correlate
1: with our arterial blood gas. Correct. Another thing super important, I think that this is a key concept for pre-hospital providers. You know, patients with hypothermia will have a decrease on their heart rate, a decrease on their respiratory rate, and their cre- decrease on their blood pressure that is linear. Um, in, in relation with the temperature, so patients can be extremely bradycardic and still have a pulse, right? So in those patients, take the take the respiratory rate and heart rate, uh, especially on a central location, carotid, you know, uh, femoral, or even if you have a Doppler or you no. Know, you know, like in, the, in case that you have an ultrasound, you know, take it for at least a minute, even a minute and a half. And if you go and try to, you know, like check your pulse for, you know, like a minute is a long time. Maybe your fingers, if you're walking in the street or the mountains are gonna be cold. So it's difficult to identify vital signs in these patients. And these patients appear death, and they might not be dead until they're warm and dead.
2: All right, wait, pause. Is he suggesting waiting for a pulse for one full minute before starting resuscitative efforts?
0: Yeah, this was a crazy new concept for me too. Right, we always talk about the sooner the better. The longer you're off the chest, the worse the outcome. But in someone with suspected hypothermic cause of their unresponsiveness, they may be incredibly bradycardic. And furthermore, they still have good outcomes even with delayed or prolonged CPR. So initially, you may check a pulse for longer than you would in someone with a suspected cardiac or respiratory cause of their arrest.
1: Yeah, take, take your time. Those patients arrive there very, very slowly. And even, you know... Even uh, prolong CPR or like de- or even delay CPR, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a, in in a few minutes. But basically, those patients arrive very very uh, progressively to that state. So you don't need to rush anything. You know you need to you know be be careful about putting that patient on cardiac arrest. It's better to have four beats a minute than none
0: so you talked a little bit about how if somebody's below 30 degrees Celsius and they're not responding to shocks um, that that maybe they're not going to respond to shocks until you warm them um, in in a pre-hospital setting where we may not have a temperature if if somebody's gotten a round of ACLS medications and they've gotten maybe a couple of shocks and they're not responding would you recommend just pausing until you get to the hospital and further rewarming efforts occur
1: I think so, yes, um, unless you have a very high suspicion that this is not, that, that the primary mechanism is not hypothermia, you know, and it's more of someone, you know, like, was shoveling snow, you know, had a MI, had cardiac arrest, and now they're a little bit cold, I and mean, in that case, maybe you are looking at, you know, pronouncement. Um, but if you are looking at primary hypothermia, then, you know, like, um, the problem is that also, Maybe not so much for shocks, but for drugs. You know, you can have if you rewarm them now. All those drugs are in the system right now, and now you have a massive amount of epinephrine. Maybe the patient has even frostbite associated with hypothermia, and now you have complicated, you know, the courses of other diseases. Right. So if it is not going to work, you can try a couple of times, but I wouldn't be get fixated on it.
0: Matt, can we take a second and just review for the listeners kind of your ACLS considerations when it comes to a hypothermic arrest?
2: When it comes to ACLS modifications during cardiac arrest caused by hypothermia, in other words, low body temperature, the things that I consider is if the patient is less than 30 degrees Celsius, I will not use any epinephrine or any other drugs. And that's pretty standard practice across the board. Once you get in between that 30 to 35 degrees Celsius level, if you are going to give uh, ACLS medications, you want to double the dose interval. In other words, we typically say a milligram of epinephrine every three to five minutes. You'll want to give that anywhere from six to 10 minutes after your first dose. When it comes to shocking V-fib, you can do that at any temperature. There's a pretty good chance it won't work below 30 degrees Celsius, but you are well within your right to try up to three times if they are below 30 and they are in VFib. If they're still below 30 after three shocks, I will just keep warming them and focus on other things rather than shocking them. When it comes to bradycardia as part of hypothermia, that is often an expected rhythm, and I would not pursue pacing or atropine until they are at least above 32 degrees Celsius, and even then, you'd have to convince yourself pretty good that the reason they're bradycardic is because they have a heart problem and not just because they're hypothermic. In the end, I would not pace bradycardia in a hypothermic patient in the pre-hospital setting.
0: You check your own agency's protocols, but oftentimes the protocol will be something if hypothermic arrest is considered, you do one round of ACLS medications and then wait until you get to the hospital. But that will be protocol specific. So if we're in the hospital, temperatures less than 30 degrees, they're not responding to ACLS meds, they're not responding to shocks, what do we do in the hospital to warm these patients such that they're at a temperature that they might respond to these things?
1: First of all, you need to think if the patient is, you know, like uh, the mantra is nobody is dead until warm and dead. But there is actually a couple of patients that are some, they are just dead, they are cold and dead. You know, if they have le- lethal injuries, you know, if they have a r- rigid chest, if there is rescue safety more from the prehospital providers, uh, you know, like the we discuss about the lower number that we encounter. Uh, Uh, But, of course, if you have, like, a temperature of 5, maybe you want to go for the world record, but it's going to be difficult, right, if you need to rewarm that patient to, you know, normal. Um, Is there asphyxia as part of the cardiac arrest? So, patients that, you know, like, have hypothermia but also, you know, have drowning or hypothermia or have asphyxia from an avalanche burial in the wilderness setting, then, you know, those patients don't have as good neurologic recovery or as good survival as your primary hypothermic patient without asphyxia. And uh, and there's some considerations for potassium use as a, uh, a, basically, a surrogate for asphyxia and, you know, a surrogate for potential for recovery. We had a... a an investigator from uh, Switzerland created this Hope score, which is hypothermic outcome prediction after ECLS. And basically, you can go online, uh, look it up. You can plug in the different uh, the different values. Uh, they take in considerations age, gender, if the hypothermia is associated with asphyxia or not, how many minutes of CPR you had, what's the serum and potassium, and what's the temperature by an esophageal term, uh, temp, uh, temperature, and then it gives you an estimation of what's the potential for survival of that patient. Um, so for example, if you plug in a 22-year-old that doesn't have asphyxia, a male with a you know temp of 22, uh, then that patient has probably you know, like likelihood of survival of 58%, you drop a potassium of 10 there, and that uh, number drops from 58 to 23, still super good, right? Um, If the, if the percentage of uh, survivability is less than 10%, then you should consider if that patient should go into ECLS, or not, but still, you know, like that, that would be depending on your cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, like your ECLS team, but you know, like more than 10% is better than, you know, like it's almost as close as out of hospital cardiac arrest, right? Yeah, that's a good
0: point. You talked about, I think you alluded to this earlier about some changes in ACLS and CPR and maybe delayed or even intermittent CPR.
1: What the heck are you talking about here? You know, with hypothermia, a cardiac arrest being one of those conditions that have, you know, a good neurologic outcome, you know, and from data coming in from uh, cardiothoracic surgery, where they, you know, stop the heart for, you know, a significant amount of time, to case reports of patients that actually receive uh, delayed or intermittent CPR with good neurologic outcome. You know, like, basically your brain if it cooled down before asphyxia or before hypoxia, your brain is protected, right? So, you know, even periods of intermittent CPR, right? We are talking about someone in the middle of the trail that, you know, is in hypothermic cardiac arrest and you need to evacuate that person from a difficult situation or location. You know, moving that patient for five minutes and doing, you know, and stopping and doing five minutes of CPR, it might be, you know, like all they need. And there have been a couple of case reports that are published on resuscitation on patients that have intermittent CPRs where they move for five minutes and then CPR for five minutes or move for five minutes and then have, you know, a CPR period of 10 minutes depending on their temperature that had Good neurologic outcome. So now with you know like stumpers, you know like with a, a cardiac um, a CPR machines, you know like maybe you will have a patient that can have a very low temperature. You put them in one of those machines and you try to rewarm them because even with intermittent CPR, uh, you know like they can have a, a good neurologic recovery. I think it's pretty fascinating to think about you know stopping for five minutes. Uh, on the chest and not uh, providing compressions and still have a patient that, you know, can survive.
0: Yeah, we talk, I mean, we push so much in cardiac arrest care, continuous high quality CPR. But if you can't get that person out of the elements, then you're never going to be able to warm them. And if you're never going to be able to warm them, you're never going to be able to get their heart to respond to your shocks or your ACLS medications. So at some point you have to get them out of the environment. And sometimes to get them out of the environment, you have to stop doing CPR. And what you're telling me is there's some data to suggest that's okay. You can stop CPR for a few minutes, move, restart CPR. And that way you can intermittently keep moving, keep doing CPR, and people can still have good survival.
1: Yes in that uh, so in that um, uh, publication they uh, if the temperature was below 28 C CPR was delayed by up to uh, 10 minutes to allow rescue uh, rescuers time to move to a safer location if the core temperature was in between 20 and 28 they perform at least 5 minutes of CPR and 5 minutes without CPR and if the core temperature was below 20 they perform at least 5 minutes of CPR and uh, less than 10 minutes without cpr and you know basically they those patients survived there are a few case reports and a, a few cases translated from animal studies and from you know cardiothoracic surgery and it's not you know like super hard data on it but it's still a concept that you know these patients even with um, periods of perfusion they can still you know survive and have a uh, meaningful neurologic outcome
2: Wow. That goes against everything we preach in ACLS, where the biggest focus is on continuous high quality CPR and
0: minimizing interruptions. It does. But remember, this is in primary hypothermic arrests in less than ideal situations. So if you're a rescuer in the backcountry with someone who arrested from hypothermia, you got to get them out. No one's coming to you. They're not bringing the ECMO machine to you. This is data that supports it's okay in that patient to stop CPR for a bit while you make your way out of the backcountry. Now, if you're in an urban environment, not much is different other than primary hypothermic arrest patients do better at the hospital where they can be put on something like ECMO and actively rewarmed rather than staying and working them on scene. So in the primary hypothermic arrest, it's okay to pause CPR for a minute to move to the ambulance, but as soon as you're able, you do still wanna get back on the chest and stay on the chest. So we've gotten them out of the field. We've managed to extricate them from the cold environment and situation. Can you talk a little bit about aggressive rewarming strategies and then, and then what hospital of choice we should be thinking about for transfer?
1: First of all, you know, you said it right. You took them out of the elements, right? Make sure that your patient is not in contact with you know cold surfaces. You know, like they, it's important not to uh, miss more heat, right? It could be the difference between going into like your, you know, 30.5 of temperature. You don't have a way to measure it, but all of a sudden you open up the chest, you know, like you let the uh, air in the or the heat in the ambulance go down because you open a door. And then all of a sudden that patient is newly exposed. You can drop one, you know, C and then that patient can snap into cardiac arrest so make sure that you are preventing any further heat loss then you know you have different ways of rewarming someone you have passive rewarming and active rewarming passive rewarming is basically when you are attempting to use the patient's thermogenesis you know, capabilities to create heat. And those are more for patients that are in mild or maybe moderate, but, you know, like starting to be on the moderate side of things. When someone is in cardiac arrest or in severe hypothermia, you know, there is no thermogenesis production by their body, right? So you're gonna need to actively rewarm them. Um, If that patient is still shivering, you can, you know, like passive rewarming uh, with, uh, you know, layers, Make sure that you protect them uh, from the environment. There is an us- uh, a very useful tip that is, if the patient is shivering and is cold with cold, uh, with cold uh, and wet uh, clothing, you can put what we call a vapor barrier really close to that wet barrier instead of like roving that patient and, you know, taking all their layers out. So that basically creates a layer when, you know, like the, um, the amount of moisture gets equalized, and those patients will, you know, will um, at least preserve some of the energy that they are producing.
0: Can you just define the differences between passive rewarming and active rewarming?
1: Yeah, so passive rewarming, you're using their own you know thermogenesis production shivering for generating heat you know but you need to try to uh fight against the other stuff that uh you know takes takes heat out of you you are you know conduction you are you know isolating them from the snow or from a cold surface you are you know like um a, Guarding against uh, wind, which is your convection mechanism to for heat loss, there's not much thing that you can do about evaporation. Patients are going to be still breathing, but if you, uh, but you can reduce radi- uh, radiation by putting different layers uh, and decreasing the amount of energy that they are. No expelling to the air.
0: So passive rewarming, we are preventing further heat loss. We're preventing cold elements from getting to them. Active rewarming, we're actually gonna be attempting to add heat
1: to their own system, their own body. How do we do that? Correct, that can be external or can be internal. In, in terms of external, you can think about, you know, like, Water bottles that are heated—you know—making sure that you're not b- burning your patient. There's different uh, type of. Uh, um exothermic devices that they basically come in as a different blankets that you can open, similar to a hand or toe warmer, um, and they can get activated with, a, with a, the oxygen in the air, and that generates an exothermic reaction and uh, uh, liberates heat. Um, also, you can, you know, there's different devices in the hospitals like your bear hugger and your, uh, you know, kind of your external devices. Uh, that can be operated by, by power, can be operated by an exothermic reaction. Um, there are some military applications for uh, stuff that gets activated with charcoal. So different ways to, you know, like uh, bring heat to the body externally. And then you have active internal rewarming. And that's when you get into more aggressive um, a, a resuscitation. One of the most common is going to be, you know, IV Uh, heated fluids, right? You can uh, heat fluid to, you know, 42 degrees Celsius. Uh, Usually we try to use dextrose plus normal sailing. The reasoning is you want to give some calories to that uh, patient to be, if you don't have calories, you cannot burn and you cannot generate heat. And we try to avoid lactate because uh, seems that there's not like super good data on it, but, you know, cold divers are having some difficulties on uh, metabolizing lactate. So we try not to give uh, LR to these patients. Um, also, you can uh, if you go, if you have blood and it's a trauma patient, you should heat that uh, blood about 38 degrees because you can create hemolysis. But at the same time, whenever you are giving IV fluids IV or heated IV fluids to someone, the degree of uh, a heat generation that you can create with that is pretty minimal. It's one C per... Uh, per liter of uh, a, a, of heated fluid, and uh, you know you have a, a range where you can get you know that amount of uh, of uh, heat gain. Um, but be careful, you know. Try to if you have a long tubing, there's going to be a lot of radiation of that heat. So you know, make sure that you. Curl your uh, IV tubing. Maybe you can put a heat pack in between those, and uh, use um, a, you know like line twists that are as short as possible.
0: Matt, can you take a second for us and just summarize passive rewarming in the pre-hospital setting for us? Yes.
2: The first step that you're going to want to do is when you're able to, you're going to want to remove the wet clothing and dry the patient as much as possible. This is often done in the next step of passive rewarming, which is get the patient to a warm environment, which for us is going to be a heated ambulance. So once you're in the heated ambulance, cut those wet clothes off, get the patient dry. And then the next step is going to be to insulate the patient so that when they lose their body heat, it is trapped by the blankets that you've warmed them in. And that causes them to reheat themselves. If you have one of those aluminum foil space blankets, this is amazing for this too. And you can pack even more cloth blankets on top of that to prevent as much heat loss and insulation as possible.
1: And then you get into the more um, aggressive ones, right? Uh, We can do mucosal irrigation, which is basically GI or bladder irrigation. You can get one to two Cs an hour, of, uh, of heat with that. Usually, uh, probably in the hospital, we wouldn't um, warm the, the fluid more than 45C because you can create some uh, mucosal thermal damage. And then you get into the very, very, very aggressive one, which is visceral irrigation, either pleura or peritoneum, where you put an anterior chest tube and a, you know, like conventional chest tube, and you just run heated water to 42 C's through the chest, especially in the left side where you can kind of bath the, the heart. And uh, these are very sick patients probably waiting for ECMO or maybe this is the only way that you can rewarm someone in your shop. But uh, there is uh, some cases of survival with um, cardiothoracic uh, lavash, and there is some uh, data on a, a a peritoneal lavage as well. I think that we as emergency physicians are not as comfortable providing peritoneal lavage, and you know I'm more uh, prone to put chest tubes for for this type of uh, of patients. Uh, you can perform hemodialysis as well. And then there is uh, a couple of catheters that are uh, named intravascular devices that are cooling or warming. I think that one of those uh, uh, brand names are the Elsius, which you need very expensive equipment, you know, a big machine that goes next to the patient and connected to a central line, basically, that has a resistant on it, and you can uh, warm that patient uh, intravascularly.
0: Great, Matt. So that's active rewarming, which oftentimes is going to be done in the hospital. But so our listeners have an understanding of it. Can you just break it down and summarize it for us once more, Matt? Active
2: rewarming as it pertains to the pre-hospital setting is going to be simple things like heated pads or heated water bottles. Some agencies might have a way to do some of these forced air warm blankets or the brand name that we use around here is called the bear hugger. Another thing that some agencies might have is a way to have warm IV fluids, which is, of course, an active rewarming that could be done in the pre-hospital setting. Then you start to move into the stuff that's going to require at least some type of facility, um, emergency room or hospital, like warm baths or lavaging the inside of the body. So putting a chest tube in and warming up the chest cavity, putting a catheter into the peritoneum and warming up the abdominal cavity, putting a Foley catheter in the bladder and warming up the, the lower bladder and the uh, genitourinary system. And then the final most aggressive active rewarming possible is going to be ECMO, which Ross is about to ask Moosey about.
1: What about ECMO for these patients? Can you talk a little bit about that? So ECMO is actually the preferred method of rewarming patients that are uh, in cardiac arrest, Secondary to hypothermia, or patients that have hemodynamic instability secondary to hypothermia, you can um, you know reach numbers of like up to one to two Cs in like five minutes, uh, and can be VA ECMO or AA ECMO, so arterial ECMO or venous arterial ECMO. As like if you just Google like a patient in ECMO, you can see like the amount of material the amount, the amount of resources that you need for uh, generating something like that. But at the same time, you know, like, again, these are patients that have much more better sur- a, a, a recovery or neurologic recovery than, you know, any other type of patient. So why we cannot use, you know, a perfusionist and an ECMO machine to really uh, change the life of someone that is maybe healthy, maybe you know young, and you know, it has, a, has a good chance of making it out of the hospital in, a, in good shape. What about
0: these central venous cannulation devices that can be used to rewarm people? Here at our hospital, we use something called the alceus catheter. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Matt?
2: Yeah. Basically, if the patient doesn't meet criteria for ECMO, uh, but they need to be rewarmed aggressively, we'll put in a central line that has pretty long balloons on them. Those balloons can hold a high volume of water. And so that central line is then hooked up to a machine that circulates hot water through those balloons, thereby warming the blood in the venous system. And they're for warming the whole
0: body. So we've briefly mentioned it a bunch of times throughout this episode, but uh, this idea of ECMO, which is probably the most advanced type of care that we can provide for these hypothermic patients, but honestly has been the biggest game changer in regards to improving the survivability of hypothermic patients and hypothermic arrests. Matt, can you break down simply exactly what ECMO is for our listeners? ECMO is a machine that lives outside the body, and
2: two catheters are placed in the patient's biggest possible blood vessels so that all of the patient's blood supply can be taken from the body, run through that machine, and then given back to the body to the patient. In terms of hypothermia, what's happening in that machine when this is done is that the machine is rewarming the blood. And this can be done at anywhere from 9 degrees Celsius per hour to sometimes even higher rates than that. So you can imagine how quickly you can get a patient back to physiologic levels of rewarm. The way ECMO is used in other diseases is anything where you need to fix something in the blood, whether that's temperature, oxygen, the amount of carbon dioxide, or poisons. Oh, and I almost forgot. ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. One more time. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO.
0: What about the patient who maybe didn't go into cardiac arrest, was extremely hypothermic, uh, showed up to the hospital or your ambulance, you started your passive or active rewarming, and now you've gotten them to a higher temperature. There's this phenomenon with their blood pressure where you suddenly might see a drop in their blood pressure. Can you can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, you can see uh, changes on their hemodynamics, and you also you can see changes on their core temperature as well. One of the... Uh, a, a very um, known and described phenomenon is what we call the rescue or circum rescue collapse of patients that are, you know, like maybe uh, having a lot of uh, cold um, blood on their extremities. And as soon as they start moving or start to mobilizing all that cold blood into the core, they can have like a lower, um, a, you know, like lower of their core temperature. And uh, basically, It is a phenomenon that is also known as after drop in terms of like dropping the temperature, you know, like as soon as you start rewarming them is very common.
0: All right, that was some phenomenal review and information. Can you take it home for us? Can you give us some take-home points, something we can take to the streets, just summarize what we talked about today?
1: Logistically, caring for a patient with primary hypothermia is difficult. Think about scene safety first. You're exposed to the same elements, right? Especially if you're working on kind of more of the remote side of things. Second, do not, you know, those patients arrive there slowly. Don't go crazy on trauma mode. You know, like be gentle. Take your time. Take a heart rate and a respiratory rate for at least a minute. Really determine if your patient is as sick as you are, as you as you think. Is this patient in cardiac arrest or not? Of course, if they have, you know, four beats per minute, you know, they're still very sick, uh, but they're still not in cardiac arrest. Think about the mantra of nobody is dead until warm and death is pretty true. There is certain conditions that maybe not, and there is new tools to decide which patients are going to be Uh, you know, like having a chance of survival, you as a pre-hospital provider, if you suspect primary hypothermia as the cause of someone in cardiac arrest, transport them to the hospital with CPR in place. If you cannot do CPR all the way, don't worry too much. You know, the hard and fast, high quality CPR might not be as important in hypothermic patients. Then think about the different tools that you have for estimating the risk of cardiac arrest in the field based on uh, the level of consciousness, which is one of the things that correlates uh, with with core temperature. Uh, Think about the evolution of these things and how this is gonna change. We probably will need to readjust the Swiss staging system at some point to um, add some other components like vital signs. And then tools for rewarming. You know, make sure that you're not losing more temperature. Make sure that there is, you know, if you have someone with, you know, like they have mild or moderate hypothermia, they're still having thermogenesis production, you know, passive um, external rewarming and move to active external rewarming and active internal rewarming when those patients are sicker. Transport them to the hospital, but prevent them from losing more heat. If you give them, you know, a a NS uh, solution that is at, you know, 21 degrees Celsius on a patient that has 25, you are creating more hypothermia. So, you know, like maybe less is better in those situations.